Hello, and welcome to the Teaching in Medicine podcast, where we explore effective teaching of the healthcare providers of tomorrow. I am your host, Dr. Kathleen Timmy. I'm excited to be back with Dr. Bridget Smith, vascular surgeon and leader in medical education from the University of Utah. If you haven't listened to our previous episode exploring her career path in medical education, please go and check that out. Today, we will focus on her experiences with medical education research and approaches to education research in general. Welcome back, Dr. Smith. Thanks so much for having me back. This is a topic I'm really excited to talk about. Tell us about the Master of Health Professions Education program that you completed. So the Master of Health Professions Education program at the University of Illinois Chicago was, you know, probably one of the best uh, decisions and investments I made in myself and my career development. Um, There are numerous MHPE programs around the country. And of course I'm biased and I can only speak to the one that I completed, but it was really, you know, uh, head and shoulders above the rest in terms of the faculty teaching within the program and their ability to connect me with other education researchers and leaders in the field um, that have really forwarded my career. So the MHPE, Um, obviously focuses on health professions very specifically. So there are ways to do a master's of education um, that are not necessarily health professions focused and certainly have a great deal to offer in terms of curriculum development and assessment. But doing one that was health professions focused meant that there were courses specifically geared towards simulation or specifically geared towards standardized patients, the ACGME milestones, et cetera. And so um, the elective coursework that was available enabled me to really craft a a program that met all of my needs within my surgical education niche. Um, The faculty were, you know, like I said before, the best in the business really in terms of their teaching. And um, they made connections for me with the ACGME that have forwarded some of my own research interests over the years. So it was a phenomenal experience, a phenomenal way to network with other education researchers. I have fast friends and colleagues from my um, from my training that you know will last a, a career and a lifetime. Uh, and really most importantly, the skills and the knowledge to do educational research at a very high level. And did you have a certain scholarly project or focus within the program? Yeah, so I, um, my thesis was geared towards investigating the preparedness for independent practice for graduates of different surgical training paradigms. So for those that listen to our first episode together, I did an integrated vascular residency training paradigm, um, and that was relatively new. The vascular surgery fellowship is the more standard or longstanding, I guess, way to train to be a vascular surgeon. And a lot of questions remained about how prepared graduates would be for practice when they finished. And I considered different um, objective assessment ways to look at those differences. But ultimately, what I decided to do was pursue a more qualitative investment investigation of the feelings of preparedness of graduates from these two different models, as well as their program directors. So I interviewed graduates at the time of graduation as they were about to start practice, as well as program directors, um, and did a thematic analysis of what people talked about in terms of what made them feel ready to be independent surgeons and identified four different themes related to the structure of the program, the organization where the program existed, 
the individual and the relational features of how the trainee interacted with the faculty and um, was able to publish that last year. And I'm you know, very excited at the qualitative methodology that I learned as well as the investigation itself. The qualitative methodology was such a black box before I went for my master's of education. And it really has as much rigor as quantitative research, if not more. Um, and yeah, it's very, very fascinating to kind of work through. I love that you said that because there are so many quantitative researchers that would say, wait, more rigor. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I find that when you think about uh, quantitative methods and statistical analyses, there are so many ways to adjust for things um, quantitatively, address different um, variables and possible confounders that it almost feels like, gosh, this is blasphemy. It also feels, it almost feels like you could make the data say what you wanted it to say, right? And that's the same um, criticism that quantitative researchers will have of qualitative methods. It's like, but how many people would say that and how how true, how true is that, right? Um, and uh, so I think the methods are very complementary. And when qualitative methods are done really well, I find that they get at that nitty gritty that you don't get from like, for example, a survey, when you find out that X percentage of respondents said why, and, you know, the question that remains for me is like, well, why did they say that? What does that even mean? And I want to dig in with qualitative methods. So I've become very much the qualitative junkie. I love that with qualitative research, you can ask questions that you have no idea what the answer will be, and then allow that to be your data set. You're, you don't already kind of have a, you don't really know what your, your findings will be as, mm -hmm. you know, quantitative research, sometimes you're expecting, you know, some, some degree of X or Y, um, but with qualitative, the, the themes really emerge and I think that's really exciting. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about your interest in team-based experiential learning to teach high value care and quality improvement. So what are some of the initiatives or novel um, team-based learning projects that you've started? So uh, I fell into the quality improvement space when I started as a junior faculty here because I wanted to get involved in education and curriculum development was a relatively straightforward place to start. And one of the gaps was quality improvement. There's a lot of uh, mandates from the ACGME and from other um, accrediting bodies to teach QI for residents and, and students as well, really. Um, so I started uh, developing curricula in that space. And then, you know, really as an early junior researcher, it made a lot of sense to try to dovetail the curriculum stuff I was working on at the practical level with research. And so I started working on some survey-based projects where I was investigating, like, what is the gap in QI education for vascular surgery trainees or general surgery trainees or medical students? Uh, and so I spent a great deal of time trying to connect my curricular efforts with my research efforts and um, have felt that the experiential component of QI education is probably the most important. I think there's a lot that can be done with didactics to teach the fundamentals, but as with anything in clinical uh, practice, I think doing it is the most important part for a learner to really um, integrate the different things that they've learned from a knowledge perspective and figure out how to execute on those behaviors and really incorporate them into their practice in the future. So I'm always working on different ways to um, facilitate that team-based approach for a resident to work with other um, 
healthcare professionals like pharmacy or social work or what have you, depending on the QI question or problem at hand that they're trying to address. So I don't have, uh, I don't have it all figured out. I don't have a clear answer for the best ways to make those things happen, but um, it's an ongoing, ongoing effort at a couple levels, both locally and nationally. Yeah, I agree. There's so much value in learning through doing. Um, you received the National Board of Medical Examiners Stemler Grant last year. Can you tell us about that project um, that was associated with the grant? Yeah, thanks. I'm um, very proud of this source of funding um, for assessment-related research. Uh, and this was something that was born out of my MHPE program and the connections I alluded to with the ACGME. Um, I became really interested in the milestones. Um, for those that aren't familiar, and, and hopefully most of your listeners are, but you know, it's a national standardized assessment system across all um, medical specialties. Um, the milestones are a little different for each different specialty, but nationally all programs submit these assessments on all learners. So it really, it it's almost like, now I'm getting into quantitative methods here, but this is the um, like registry data really for education that we can tap into to say we have national comprehensive data on a set of learners. How do we look at that data to better understand how we're doing in our educational training programs to ensure our trainees are competent um, once they graduate? And so what this work looks at is uh, we're working to connect or investigate really the association between milestones assessment ratings during training with the patient care outcomes of those surgeons once they're in independent practice. Um, and the outcomes metrics we're using are the vascular quality Quality Initiative Registry or the VQI Registry um, is national quality data on vascular surgical procedures. So um, it's almost a new foray, foray into a totally new methodology to understand education outcomes. How do we look at learner assessments and associate them with their what they actually do as doctors someday? Um, so just the, you know, the first year of the grant has even been trying to negotiate the data use agreement between, you know, an educational body like the ACGME with a clinical patient safety organization like the VQI, those types of organizations haven't had to crosstalk before. And so understanding each other's data, data sensitivity, and how to make those linkages has been a project in and of itself. Uh, so it's really exciting work with a very exciting team of um, individuals who are all collaborating and contributing to it. It's been a lot of fun. And I feel like you're getting at, you know, what all of us who do education research, that's really the gold standard, like getting to that impact level of um, impact on the system or impact on patients. You know, if we think of, you can get nerdy for a few minutes, but like Kirkpatrick's hierarchy. So you start with reaction. So that's, you know, did they like your program, basic satisfaction, you get to learning. So did they acquire some new knowledge or skills? Then behavioral change is even sometimes hard to assess. Um, so was that learning actually applied? but you're even taking it a step further. Like ultimately the whole reason why I think many of us are in this field is we want to provide effective educational systems so that patients ultimately receive excellent care. Exactly. Um, and and I, I feel like it's so rare to hear about projects that are actually getting at that, that tip of the pyramid. And after this past year of trying to execute on DUAs and data linkages, I understand why it's so hard. <laughs> 
Um, you know, I think medical education research suffers from a lot of single institution studies, a lot of satisfaction based outcomes metrics, like you mentioned, um, and for good reason. I mean, I think that um, education researchers have been undervalued historically. Um, as we spoke about in our uh, last um, podcast, it's hard to convince leadership of the importance and value of what we're doing and even to explain to them what it is that we're trying to do and why it's so important um, can be a daunting task. And then the next layer of that challenge is that it's also historically not well-funded. The NBME Stemler grant is one of um, the most significant sources of funding for education researchers, and it barely scratches the edges of what RO1 funding looks like. So to be able to have the time to do this kind of work well and to organize the um, high-level team that's needed to do it is a major undertaking. And hopefully as some of this early research um, makes its way through the pipeline and, and gets out to the academic community, we'll see increased funding opportunities for it as the importance is recognized. I think once you prove that link that it does impact patients, you know, there's, there's a better case for funding. And mm -hmm. um, so what, what are the next steps? So you talked about kind of getting these two large regulatory bodies to kind of communicate with each other after you have access to those databases, what are your next steps? Yeah. So I'll, I'll be a little bit of a research nerd here on the first step. Um, the first step in the, the research is really figuring out what the exposure variable is because the ACGME milestones um, and the sub-competencies encompass the six core competencies, patient care, medical knowledge, systems, um, practice-based learning, professionalism and communication. And we recognize at the outset of this work that different sub-competencies were likely to contribute more or less or be more or less relevant to patient outcomes. Like one of the sub-competencies is teaching. And while it's an important competency for a physician to be able to teach those around them, even if you're not in academics to teach, you know, your scrub tech or your new nurse practitioner on your team or whatever it is uh, about what you're doing, you need to have some skills in teaching. But do does that competence really translate into how your patients do after surgery. I'm not sure that it does. So step one was figuring out which of the milestones and subcompetencies to include as an exposure variable that might predict patient care outcomes. So we're just wrapping up a Delphi process with experts to gain consensus on which of the milestones to even include in our models. Um, and then once we're able to get those um, data sources linked, we'll be looking at how that exposure variable may or may not predict um, relevant patient care outcomes in the clinical registry. And what kind of a timeline are, are you looking at for completion of the project? The funding um, was a two-year grant that started in September of 2020. So we're coming up on the halfway mark for the funding. Um, the research team is really committed to this, in particular, the ACGME. Um, the milestones researchers within the ACGME are very committed to these types of projects. So I'm sure we will extend long after the grant itself closes. Um, However, we're hoping to have some significant results by the end of this next academic year to be able to report on at least one or two of the um, registries in the clinical side. In a project of this magnitude, I'm sure you have an entire team that's kind of helping you. Um, how do you develop a research team and what kind of collaborations have you have you made? 
Yeah, this all started with one of my, um, well, two of my MHPE professors, Dr. Tikian and Dr. Park um, at UIC, uh, that had worked with one of the individuals inside the ACGME Milestones group and said, oh, you should at least meet. So, you know, they were able to set up a meeting for us to just sort of discuss the the topic of interest. And, um, you know, it was really born from that first conversation. And I think for me, recognizing that there was value to persistence and you know extreme organization being very clear about every step along the way and having those very fundamental skills that i learned in my mhpe and and that most researchers you know will appreciate very easily is do the literature search first i think a lot of med ed research still also is like reinventing the wheel or doing a project that's already been done or is not novel um but like having that strong foundation of the, you know the literature search to support why the research was valuable and that it was possible um, and continuing to build that team on the clinical side too. You know, I realized early on where my skills were and where they ended and where I needed to fill in a gap. And I was not terribly familiar with the VQI registry, with the variables in it or outcomes research, quite honestly, clinical outcomes research is not, you know, obviously my strength. And so one of my partners here at Utah, Dr. Ben Brook, um, is very involved in VQI, very knowledgeable about it um, and does outcomes type research himself. So adding him to the team um, to really help me speak that language was instrumental um, in making all this happen. And then, you know, once we got the, this is, I guess, the benefit of the grant funding, the team was already starting to come around and come together on this project before we got the Stemler grant. Um, but I think having that funding, although the money wasn't the most important part for this particular project, it, um, it just sort of pushed the timeline for everybody. It helped us all to really come behind it um, with a tighter timeline than just sort of batting it around as a side project. So in addition to monetary uh, benefits of grant funding, I think that was one other benefit of helping give the team a tighter timeline. And then once the project is completed, how will you approach dissemination of your findings um, in terms of maybe sharing at meetings, publication? What, what's your approach? So I'm trying to learn to stay ahead of um, things a little bit. And as we're doing different pieces of the project to kind of keep writing the methods as they're occurring so that it's very easy um, to share the scholarship once it's complete. And so even just that expert consensus building Delphi process I alluded to is something that I'm working on an abstract right now for a meeting um, to see if it's something I can present at the podium to generate some discussion, um, as well as writing up a manuscript and a few other uh, papers forthcoming. Um, I think that getting to uh, the podium at even some clinical type meetings as opposed to more traditional med ed meetings would be very valuable to further help um, clinicians and other leaders in the clinical field of vascular surgery or whatever your specialty might be understand the value of this work and what we're trying to do to connect education with patient outcomes. So while that may be a long shot and I might be better served by starting with the education meetings, uh, the team will probably be starting with more clinical type meetings to try to at least get like the dialogue going. And I think then you're bringing something novel to that meeting, whereas at an education focused meeting, there may be others who are doing similar work in their silos. <laughs> So what hopefully, and hopefully we, we can write it in a way that like the clinician understands what it is we're trying to do. Cause as soon as you say milestones, you get into like, as you speak nerd land that mm -hmm. most clinical uh, faculty are not necessarily interested in. So I have to be very careful about, you know, how I kind of 
put together the results in a way that others can understand them and be interested in them and find them valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all about that marketing. <laughs> what advice do you have for trainees who are interested in education research? Do you feel like an advanced degree is imperative? You know, how can trainees get their foot in the door? So I had started with a surgical education research fellowship at a national association, Association for Surgical Education. That was a great way to get started because there was an assigned mentor and there was a lot of networking. And I think starting to meet other people within this space is really valuable. So even doing a program like that, even if you have some of the fundamental research skills already, doing a program like the ASE SURF was a way to start to build my community and find other people with similar interests to help build research teams like the one I'm working with now. So the networking piece of it should never be underestimated. I think that's really valuable. Um, I think the advanced degree, as I've mentioned a few times, had a lot of major benefits, some of them networking and a lot of them gaining um, like more sound research skills. So I think that taking the time to do that is well worth the investment. for people that are not able to take that time or spend that money to invest in a degree, um, the smaller uh, fellowship type programs are also valuable. So while I think it's highly valuable, um, and if you can do it, you should, there's still opportunities to be successful, even if it's not in the cards for you. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I'll ask you again on this episode, if you have a piece of advice or a pearl that you would like to leave us with today. I guess I would just say that given what we've talked about today from the research perspective, the pearl would be persistence. Um, You know, there are a lot of people that don't understand um, education research, the reasoning behind it, why is it valuable, how to invest in it, how to grow it. I think that if it's something you're passionate about, there is space for this, there is a need for this, and there is a community for it. And it might take a little time to build that community or figure out what your niche space is. But if it's something you're passionate about, you absolutely can build a career around education research. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share that with us and for recording two episodes. And we're just so grateful for the wisdom and experience that you've shared. Thanks again. It was really great to talk to you. Please send any comments or suggestions to Podcast at gmail.com. Please like us on Facebook and Instagram and follow us on Twitter at teachinginmed.